The future has arrived. As the world and humanity itself moves faster and faster into unimaginable possibilities, old institutions that built connection and shaped our sense of meaning are falling by the wayside. In their wake, profound questions about ethics, our purpose, and spirituality demand new answers. Join your host, Scott Mason, in Season 2 of the Purpose Highway Podcast. We will explore how these social changes will revolutionize our society. We will learn how they impact our own search for connection and meaning. And we will hear stories of influencers whose lives have had radical change from the inside. And found profound connection to others and themselves through a new definition of meaning. The future has arrived. Are you ready? When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we wanna make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's NOLA, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's NOLA crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. It's Nola's delightful bites come in three flavors. Luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala, and dark, decadent, chewy chocolate. It's Nola is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com. That's I-T-S-N-O-L-A. Guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack. Check out It's Nola's website for yourself and find out how good it is. Hello, everybody. It's Scott Mason revving up for another race down the Purpose Highway. If you like what we're doing, be sure to subscribe and give us a thumbs up on YouTube or a review on Apple. Sitting next to me today in the front seat is Chris Keto. Now, normally, I tell you a little bit of information about the guest at this point. But this time, our approach is going to be a little bit different for reasons that will be very clear going forward. Suffice it to say, Chris, I am glad to have you on the show. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, finally connect with you and, and get on and be here with you. Very Excellent. Cool. Yeah, we are very excited, too, and I know you've got a lot to share with us. We're going to roll up our sleeves, dig right in. Chris, weirdest first question of an interview ever, but I got to go there. <laughs> you were born with an allergy. Is that correct? I was, well, I, I don't know if I was born with an allergy or it developed several years after, but when I was very young, it was discovered that I had a severe, very severe allergy to peanuts and tree nuts. Mm. And how did you navigate that? Well, you know, that's a very good question. For almost 24 years of my life, I navigated it very well. Uh, you know, I grew up very much in an ideal family. My mother was a teacher. My father was in the insurance industry. Oh. And I had two younger brothers. I was the oldest. 
and for many years, uh, grew up on Long Island, played lacrosse, had that very Americana lifestyle. And, and to go back to your question specifically, it was very simple. I avoided peanuts and tree nuts, and it was something that I wasn't top of mind, but I was aware not to eat. But if something, for an example, anyone that has food allergies in your audience may know, you you become very sensitive to reading labels. And yeah. they always say, even though there's not nuts or peanuts or allergens in a food, it, it may say may contain. But at that point and up until my early 20s, I would not be concerned if it said may contain traces or anything like that. So I, I dealt with it like every 16-year-old or 12-year-old would, which was, you know, you kind of just go about life. Well, did you have to carry around pills or needles or anything like that just in case you somehow accidentally were on a plane, for instance, and someone sat next to you and had eaten peanut butter or any of these sorts of things? That would be a tough situation. Uh, Ideally, I wouldn't want to be on a plane with peanut butter. But throughout life, I've always had epinephrine or otherwise known as EpiPens, which are very common, and that's the main medical uh, device to administer aid in an an anaphylactic allergy, whether it be a bee sting or food allergy. And it's really epinephrine that will stop the um, Mm -hmm. anaphylaxis. Uh, With that being said, though, there's expirations on them. They last about a year. And I can say most likely the entire time growing up, I had them in either one. I don't know if I was able to find them where they were. They were not always on me. And two, they were most likely expired and, oh, they're six months out. All right, whenever. When are we going to the doctor? We'll get them. And, you know, that was just, you know, it's kind of how you you, you handle things at that age and you don't understand the severity of a reaction. And at that point, I did not know how severe I knew I was allergic, but I've never ate peanut butter. I don't really I can honestly say I don't know what the taste is or peanuts or nuts. And I didn't know how severe a reaction would be because there could be reactions that, oh, you know, I sneeze a little bit or mm-hmm. there's situations where within a half hour, an hour, your throat's mm-hmm. closed and you can't breathe and you're suffocating. I did not know. I did not have these flare ups. or I did not have allergic reactions where I knew how severe this is and or could be for my situation. Talk to me a little bit about your Religious upbringing, if any, was your family church going? Were you the sort of people that had uh, uh, regular involvement in large community service-based organizations? Uh, What was your family life like from a purpose-driven or a spiritual perspective? Absolutely. You know, I grew up, I would say, in a very much agnostic, tilt slightly spiritual family. My mother was a special education teacher for 35 years, but she also had a PhD in holistic medical philosophy. Mm. So I remember being younger and going through her Doreen Virtue angel angel books, and we had crystals in the house, and (laughs) we had a a sense of that. It was balanced out by my father, who was in the insurance industry for for many years. Uh, So I always grew up with both. I grew up with a very practical you know, grounded business side. Then I had a, you know, I wouldn't say at all a traditional religious upbringing. You know, we joked in our family that Christmas was Santa's birthday. That's the <laughs> best way I can kind of sum all that up. I, I cannot recall really ever going to church. I think there was once or twice we went for an event with a cousin or a family or really the most times I've ever been in churches are for 
friends and family that had been married and we, we had to go through. And, you know, every time I'm there, I had no idea what the process was or, or how any of that goes. But I did go through the, I, I would say this, I went through the motions of baptism and confirmation, but there was no personal feeling or any, it was just something we had to kind of do because everyone does it. And that's just that. But other than that, we never stepped foot in the church. We weren't against it. It just, it never came up and it never was something that we looked at and it never resonated with me or, or really anyone in my family, I could say. Now, you grew up in Long Island, then eventually you left to move somewhere else. Is that I, not correct? I did. I, I did what a lot of people do. I, I grew up in Long Island, New York, finished up school. I went to college in Connecticut. And then from there, I, you know, I was 22 at the time. And like many people that age, you know, you're, you're, you're getting back from college and, you know, New York City never resonated with me. I lived about six miles outside and been in and out. And I had that experience of being on the railroad and the subway. How and... dare you say that? <laughs> I am insulted. Yeah. I, You're you off know, the show right now. <laughs> I, I love it. So I, I, and I also don't love the winters and the cold. So I said, all right, well, I, I, I had the New York experience. It's time to head west. So I uh, packed up and I drove out to Los Angeles. And at that time, I... I, I thought I wanted to go into the entertainment industry on the business side, oh. being a talent agent. Mm -hmm. Ended up, you know, not necessarily going that route, but I ended up going into, you know, high-end real estate, which was really a lot of the same behaviors and transferable skills. I just preferred to, to deal with houses and a little bit different industry. Uh, so I had that, and that was, you know, very fitting. I went to, you know, my undergrad degree was in business, so made that jump out there and. Uh, I got I got out to LA in about October of 2011, and I didn't know anybody. I pretty much the joke was I washed ashore in Los Angeles a year ago. I was about a year and a half ago. I was still in college, so I had that one year break where I was kind of bouncing around a little bit, figuring out where I was going to go. Then it turned into oh, I'm moving across the country. Let me prepare for that. So got so, to LA. Yeah. So you go to LA. You want to work as a talent agent, and instead, it turns out your life is kind of like a movie. Is that not correct? It kind of is. Uh, it, it does turn into a movie a few months later in that early spring. But when I first got there, I said, you know, I, I feel I'd rather be in real estate. I, I yeah. like that a little bit more. And I was very fortunate to meet some individuals that have had both careers that were older and did that years ago and said, hey, listen, there's some industry changes and it may not be the best fit. And I was very happy with that decision and, and, it, and moving forward. What happened to you in 2012? Absolutely. So a lot happened. Uh, and a lot's happened. And it's been a big process since then. And, you know, looking back now, we're almost nine years, a little more than nine years, nine and a half years later. And it's still something that I think about, and the question you just proposed is something I think about almost daily in some capacity, or there's something that reminds me, and you process moments, and you look back on life, and I've since recently, within a year, left Los Angeles, so I had about almost nine years there, and it's very interesting. People ask, what do you miss, or what's your experience there, and so much of my time there and my life, and at this point, comes down to one night, one moment, a few decisions and grappling is the right word. And, you know, throughout this interview, I'm going to do my best to have the right language for 
the near-death experience, the process, and it's very difficult. And if I pause, I'm just trying to find the right word because yeah. a lot, because really, I feel we don't have the language to describe really the emotion, what happened, and really, but I'm going to do my best to absolutely paint the most accurate, authentic picture of of the story myself and, and for you and for you and the viewers. So if I do pause or I, I kind of look up a little bit, I'm just trying to really put it in the best context possible. I actually really appreciate that. One of the things that I talk about on another show that I co-host with a friend of mine is language as a tool for connection. It's so imprecise. We have vocabularies and words that seemingly address every single component of the ex human experience, but it still isn't enough so many times to truly connect us. So do whatever you need to. Think as long as you need to. Get out what you can. We're going to feel you. Thank you. Um, and I'll do my best to, to deliver that. So there was a, uh, you know, I was integrating myself into Los Angeles, and I met a few friends. And the story, you know, it's so interesting. Looking back, there's so many moments that were just either luck, divine intervention, or whatever mm -hmm. it may be of the universe mm -hmm. being there. And it was a Sunday night in Los Angeles. And that's very important to the story later on. I'll circle back. There's little details throughout yeah. a story that may not seem like anything. And then year, sometimes even years later, you realize, oh, my God, that was so insignificant yeah. at the time. But that saved my life. Wow. That it could have been a Sunday night or whatever it was. And we were at a hotel for a birthday party. And, you know, everyone's mixing and mingling. There was nothing out of the ordinary. I always get this question. I was not drinking. I was completely sober, mm -hmm. just out mixing and mingling. It was like mm -hmm. eight o'clock, eight thirty on a Sunday night, you know, making the rounds, talking with everyone, having a good time. And they start to pass out cake, birthday cake. Everyone's taking a slice, and you're you're talking. It's it's really something that everyone has done. It was nothing out of the ordinary. It was a yeah. birthday party, handing out cake. On a Sunday night, that is it. This was the scene. People were mixing, mingling. You're talking. Oh, here's the cake. You have it. You're in conversation. And I got a piece of cake. It looked like a absolute, like just chocolate filling and chocolate cake, very basic like that. And I go take a bite of the cake. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't really know. I still kind of have an idea what peanuts or nuts taste like. Mm. I've never had them. Mm -hmm. And I take a you know a piece of the cake and I eat it. And I realize the moment it hits my mouth within this quarter second or I, the time I think, was that a peanut? I don't know, but I swallowed because I was in the moment. You're not thinking you're, right. you're, you're eating. It's a piece of cake. Right. I mean, I'm doing this for, for at this point, I'm, I'm 24 years old. Right. Uh, and it, you're just eating a meal. That, yeah. That's it. You do that three times a day for your entire life. You know, you've done this thousands of times. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, was that a peanut? I don't know. And then I'm in this room and I'm like, I, I don't know. Then I'm like starting to look and I'm like, oh, wait, there is peanut in this cake. There are mm. peanuts in here or nuts. It's a peanut butter cake. My first reaction is, oh, my gosh. Okay, what do I do? Let me, you know, let me not cause a scene. Let me kind of, let, you know, I, I remember, you know, let me get some Sprite because the, the carbonated, Soda will help my throat because I felt a little itch. Now, I felt a little itch in my mm. mouth, and that was it. Then it was kind of okay, mm. and it was in my mouth. And, again, I never had a 
major reaction or really any reaction up to this point. So I did not know what would happen, if anything would happen. Did it really matter? Maybe I can just take some Benadryl and we'll be okay. Mm -hmm. So the night was ending and I didn't have a reaction. I had a little, you know, my mouth was a little itchy for a second. I think I was more just kind of freaked out because I was shocked. And I was like, they would see me kind of like jump when I yeah. ate the cake and realized it was a peanut. Yeah. I didn't want to cause attention and anything like that. Uh, so then I, I headed home, drove home. I said, you know what? I'm going to get home. I'm going to take two Benadryl. It's a Sunday night. I'll wake up. I'll get a good night's sleep. It won't be an issue because I was really okay at this point. Yeah, I was a little yeah. anxious, we would say, but it wasn't a, a, a health issue. It was more just, oh, I can't believe that happened. Right. Wow. Honestly, at that point, I was more just like, who has a peanut butter cake? <laughs> Who puts nuts in a cake? Like that to me was like the, I was focusing on that, not really anything else. And I, I got to say, I can relate, but go on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was like, all right, that's that. So I get home, it's, you know, around, you know, I'm going to paint my best of time frames. The times might not be the most accurate of that night, but the, the time between the events is going to be very accurate just to mm -hmm. really paint a picture because the time in the next six to eight hours is so critical to this story where minutes and seconds have a difference of life and death. And I'll soon, soon get into that. And it's like nine, nine thirty or so around them. And I said, all right, I'm going to take the two Benadryl. And I'm going to lay down. So I'm laying in bed, trying to sleep, help the Benadryl to kick in and try and get a good night's sleep. Like, like many people do. We take Benadryl. And I said, you know, I, I'm still not feeling well. Now I'm starting. It, it's been about an hour an hour and 15 minutes since I, I ingested the, the nut. Yeah. And I'm laying there. I'm saying, I don't feel well. I took two Benadryl. I, maybe I need to take like another two. We'll see. Wow. So I said, All right, let me get up and like look in the mirror. And, you know, where's that EpiPen? I knew I had an EpiPen. Yeah. Let me just have it just in case. We'll put it on the counter and let's see if I can find it. So yeah. I had it. And lo and behold, it, it was expired by a few months. I think it was expired and maybe... October and we're mm -hmm. now in April. So there's a six month. And so, okay, that was, but that was normal behavior. And that was just what we did for my entire life up to that point. You get them when you got them and it wasn't something that was top of mind and I'm laying there. And then, you know, I go back and, you know, the other two bears, now I have four Benadryl in me and I still don't feel better. Now I'm like, you know, you lay there and you know, when you lay in bed and you just start thinking, all right, well, what was that? Or your mind starts to run. And that's yeah. what started to happen. I said, well, how's my breathing? Is my breathing labored? How do I feel? Am I restless? Is it is because it I took too much Benadryl? Am I just all excited from earlier? Yeah. So, you know, let me get up. I'm going to go, you know, it's been another half hour. Let me go look in the bathroom. And I said, I'm starting to just, I just don't feel right. My body's right. warm. I'm, I'm restless. And I get up and I, you know, you flick the light on in the bathroom when it's been dark and you're all groggy eyed looking. Yeah. Go, all right. And this was the first moment where I had concern for my health. And I looked in the mirror, mirror and I was red. I had hives, mm. my face, my neck, my underarms, my entire body oh my was God. breaking out in hives and a rash. Oh my God. And I was red and I was warm. And at that point, I start thinking, all right, something's going on here. This yeah. isn't working. Maybe it's just a little bit of a reaction. The Benadryl's, you know, maybe the Benadryl's starting to kick in. Maybe it takes 45 minutes to an hour for all this Benadryl I took. So I, you know, go back to my room, and lay down. 
I'm like, all right, let me focus on my breathing and let me see what happens. And at this point, I start running ideas. Well, what am I going to do? Do I have the EpiPen? Yeah. Okay, it's expired. The Benadryl, is that going to work? Do I call an ambulance yeah. if I have to? I'm starting to think, what do I do? Do I take myself to the hospital? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm new to this city. What if the ambulance doesn't show up on time? What if they don't have epinephrine? I mean, whether these concerns are real or not, this is what's running through my head in the moment at 24 years old, alone in a city. I did not have, there was no family and friends. Mm -hmm. Like my mom or parents weren't upstairs. My best friend wasn't next door. I wasn't Mm -hmm. in a community. I really did not know where the hospitals were. I had Mm -hmm. to put them up on my foot, pull them up on a map. You know, I'm brand new to a city. So the environment's new. I don't have a community. It's really myself alone in this situation. And I then start starting to breathe heavier. It's the heavier breathing. It feels more laborious. And I said, all right, you know what? I'm going to make a decision here. I think I have to go to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get to the hospital? So in that moment, I ran through all those options in my head. Do I take the epinephrine now? Does it work? What'll happen? Will I be able to move if I take the epinephrine? I've never had a shot of mm-hmm. epinephrine, which is a major shot of adrenaline in your yep. body. Yeah. Will it work? Do I call an ambulance? Will they get here? Do they? I, what is the best course? Should I just drive myself? It's Sunday night yeah. in Los Angeles. Yeah. What'd you and end up doing? So I ended up deciding to grab my EpiPen and get in my car and drive on a Sunday night at around 11 o'clock. Now I go back to why this Sunday was so important. LA is known for its unbelievable level of traffic. Yes. It was a Sunday night at 11 o'clock. Yeah. And my entire nine years of living in Los Angeles, There are very few times I've ever been driving nine o'clock on 11, 11 o'clock on a Sunday night yeah. and or have been on the roads in that city yeah. where there were no cars of like there were course. that Sunday night in April. And a trip that could maybe take 12 minutes could turn into 35 minutes. Sure. 18 minutes. Yep. And I was dry. And so I decided now at this point, my breathing was getting difficult. I, I knew something was wrong. So from a health standpoint, I was deteriorating quickly. It was going kind of downhill. I had a delayed reaction and the reaction was picking up. And then as well as the, the health issue, I had the mental and emotional distress of the situation. You know, it, were you freaking out? I, I, well, I, to the, my best of my recollection, I'm sure I was freaking out, but I had to get myself to the hospital yeah. to survive. Yeah. So yeah. I really went into a tunnel vision and said, okay, I'm going to drive. I flicked the hazards on in my car and I said, I'm going to drive safely and get myself quickly to the hospital. And if I have to, I'm going to get as far as I can before I have to use the epinephrine, if that's what I have to do. That was my thinking in that moment, having, you know, being 24 in a city where I didn't know anyone, uh, new to the area, never had a reaction before, did not know how I was going to react, what was going to happen, or really, I did not know, have any knowledge of the anaphylaxis process as mm-hmm. well as epinephrine. So I was going just off what I thought was best in that situation. So I end up driving myself to the hospital and I get there, I pull in, I stumble out of the car 
and I walk into the emergency room and I kind of fall into the desk because I'm, I'm red, I am breaking, I'm having trouble breathing. And I remember driving and just wheezing and wheezing and oh just really was tough to breathe. And this it, panic was setting in. Of and course. I, got, I got to the hospital and the nurse behind the desk goes, do you have ID or anything? And I pull out my wallet and I pulled out my wallet to show her my identification give her my driver's license. Mm -hmm. And I remember in a wallet, they have the little slits for your credit cards and driver's yes, license. Yes, always I are inconvenient, barely, by the way. I could barely get the ID out of the little slit. My oh. motor function was dropping. I was not breathing well at all. My body was off. It was I was falling apart. And I remember mm. falling into that counter. And I just... Mm. I remember... I vi there's moments I vividly remember from that. I remember yeah. jumping out of the seat and another nurse from behind the counter grabbing me. Oh Literally, God. these two women, and I'm about six foot, 180 pounds, yeah. and they carried me. Oh. Each grabbed an arm and pretty much dragged me into the emergency room and put me on a bed, and then I was surrounded by a team. And at that point... I mean, I made it there with not even minutes to spare. Oh, so that God. Sunday night, that hitting that green light made all the difference. Because oh, I God. don't know how much longer I would have been able wow. to function to get myself out of the car, make that extra turn, or go an extra 90 seconds or a minute. It came down mm -hmm. to the line in that oh, sense. God. And that that's the, you know, I always say that's 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 the story of what got me to the hospital and then in the hospital is really where the story takes off of the near death experience and that second part of what you know we spoke about. So you're in the hospital. Mm -hmm. In the ER, mm -hmm. people are surrounding you. Mm -hmm. What happens next? I'm there and I'm thinking to myself, why is everyone so panicked? They're taking my shirt off. They're hooking oxygen up. They're putting all the, the pads on me. They're working. They're frantic. They knew I had an allergic reaction. I walk in, I said, I'm having, I had an allergic reaction. I, I can't breathe. And I'm laying there. In the drive in, I had pain. Mm -hmm. In the moments in there, I had pain. When I was on that hospital bed, I just kept thinking, why is everyone so panicked? Why is everyone so running around like in the, the ER TV shows we see? Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't feel pain anymore. I just was really calm. And I was there and they're working on me and they're getting oxygen. They're putting epinephrine through my shoulder. They have an epidural. I have Benadryl going into my wrist. I had every chemical that they could find that they could oh. pump into me at this time. And I later found out later the times within this of how long I was in there. I had, you know, at this point I could say the concept of time went away. The mo I, I was just there. And this is where the language, like I spoke earlier, comes yeah. in where it's very hard to describe. I'm going to do my best to really paint a vivid picture because the next 40 minutes are, are a major point in the story and, and everything. And, and really, the, the next 40 minutes changed my life forever.
And I'm laying there and I just feel this euphoric bliss there. I'm now at this point, I'm suffocating completely. I'm not breathing. There's no oxygen coming in. My throat is closed completely. It's, it's pretty much completely closed. They're looking around, they're holding my mouth open. They're, you know, looking in there and trying to get me to respond. I'm, I'm not responsive. I remember the doctor, lead doctor, asking if I've ever had a tube down my throat. And I, just, I think I nodded. I don't even know. I wasn't super responsive at all, which I later found out having, you know, did the due diligence on this. And I'm laying there and I'm just thinking to myself, in that moment, not much, just laying there like, oh, this, this could be it. And they're, they, the epinephrine at this point was not working. They were not stopping. I was, my throat was not opening up. I was not responsive. I, they could not get oxygen into me. So I was suffocating slowly. And, and I didn't feel anything. I felt this very calm peace. And I had this realization, or if that's the right word, it, it, again, the language is tricky, but this understanding that I was dying at this point. And the doctor I know leaned into me and he just looked at me and said, I'm sorry, I can't save your life. And that came after they could not, they, they, the epinephrine wasn't working. And the throat, my throat was so swollen shut that they, they weren't able to put a tube down my throat because you have to get it down there. They just they couldn't, they couldn't jam it in, you know. <laughs> um, so, and I just thought to myself, and there was really no response of, oh my God, it was, it was really a wave of emotion and understanding that, okay, I'm dying. Yeah, I'm dying. And here I am you know, on a hospital bed on a Sunday night by myself, dying alone, suffocating to death. And, and these thoughts that ran through me, again, this happened almost nine and a half years ago, but it's like it happened 20 minutes ago. And even telling the story, I mean, I'm sweating through my, my shirt and it, it's still very real. And I, I'm still very much processing a lot of this, you know, almost a decade later. I just remember and feel the thought of that, you know, nothing material matters. I remember laying there and thinking, you know, iPhones don't matter. Nothing material matters. Love only matters. Like, and that was, those were the thoughts. And that's not something I would really think about. I mean, I moved to, I mean, you know, Beverly Hills selling luxury homes and I'm sitting here saying these things don't matter. And I'm having this really, you know, a kind of, calm before leaving this this consciousness and this life these thoughts washing over me of materialism and that's not that's not important and, and love is important and i don't know if these were my thoughts because they were just coming in and that's what was present in the moment and it was this euphoric there's there's no feeling and there's no word other than euphoric, euphoric I can come up with language wise to demonstrate how to really paint the picture of how I felt in that moment when I was laying there suffocating and I realized that I was like you know I'm I'm dying this this I'm dying I I feel I've been here before in this moment. It's interesting that you say that. Just to connect with you a little bit here about something 
on 9-11, I was near the World Trade Center. And I was one of the crowds of people who fled from the dust clouds when the first tower went down. And then I watched in intense shock as the second one went down right in front of my eyes. And then after that second one went down, all of a sudden these planes just sort of popped out of the air. And we didn't know what they were. And people were screaming and fainting and falling on the ground. But what you're saying I can relate to. I remember thinking, it's a beautiful, crisp, clear day. The sky is so lovely. The air is wonderful. And I'm about to die. Because people were thinking these were this was a next wave of attacks. That these were bombs that were literally going to come down. And I totally can relate. Everything else went out of my mind for a moment. And as I was sitting there thinking, this is it. This is how I'm going to die. And then gradually I realized I wasn't dying and was able to move on. But that sense of calm in the face of a death that you can see is something, and you, of course, had it at a level far beyond what I was experiencing, but it's something that can be hard to explain to those that haven't experienced it. But I want to tell you, I understand. I really do. Yeah. And I, I try my best to use language and be as descriptive as possible to convey that that those moments, those very tender moments. Yeah. Uh, and that's not something that you would ever, you know, people would normally experience in life. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, it's very far and few in between. And then if they're articulated and actually discussed, because they're very personal and something I didn't discuss for many years. Of course. Uh, and, you know, so in that moment, having those thoughts wash over me of love is what matters, materialism doesn't matter. And I'm dying at this point. And I never, I didn't want to pass away, but there was a just, I'll use the language, an acceptance of this is happening. And mm-hmm. I don't think I can stop it. Mm-hmm. There was nothing. I was just laying there and that was it. And I, I was just in this blissful state. And, you know, I, growing up, my, one of my grandfathers died prior to me being born. Another grandfather passed away when I was several years old, about two years old. So I don't really have a, a relationship or a, a connection. I was, I was under under three years old when my other grandfather passed away. And, and you know, I said my upbringing, I, my, you know, we, my family was somewhat spiritual and we would go to psychics or mediums. And that was something we experienced and that was open and, something that was normal within my household. And, you know, in this moment, I'm in this conscious state of, of leaving my physical body, leaving this reality, leaving this life. And I had both my grandfathers present themselves to me. And as clear as it could be, I my one grandfather goes, you can't die. It's not, you You can't die yet. It's not your time. You have work to do. I've, I have to interrupt for a second. What did they look like? So I, my vision of them is what I viewed them to look like. And I knew them. So I knew them energetically. I knew them from a spiritual connection but I, I can't say I could reach out and grab them, but mm-hmm. energetically and spiritually and consciously they were there. It was almost like a, I would say like a telepathic or an energy mm-hmm. of 
you're, you, can, you cannot die. You have work to do. You have relationships to fix. You have to go back in that moment. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't argue with them. I just said, okay, that was it. And that was the conversation. Okay. And in that moment, I remember then thinking after saying, oh, this just happened. We had this exchange and I don't have the right language. I'm pulling what the best I can mm-hmm. is. Of course. And I then thought to myself, I don't want to die. I can't die. I don't want to die. Nope, not going to happen. And when that, when then after the okay, and then I thought the initial thought was that, I then remember, and again, this is a, I'm in a euphoric, blissful state. I'm not in this reality anymore. And when that happened, I then came back and it was like a snap within a second. And I just went back into my body and I just heard, felt, and saw everything in this reality and came back into immense pain and breathing. And I started to become responsive and the nursing staff was happy. The doctor was happy and I came back and this was the first time I actually verbally said something and I was trying to breathe and asking for more oxygen because I was still, I was fighting to breathe at this point and I was back. I felt like the world snapped back in in that moment and I was pushed back out. When, right before you were pushed back out, when you were having this communication with your grandfathers and you were in this other state, talk to us a little bit about to the extent that you can, what it, how it differed from our world. Like, did it look different? Were there visual characteristics that you were perceiving outside of the sense of calm? Was there a sense of, you mentioned time had no meaning. Was time still having no meaning here? When you say you were in another plane or, or in that life as opposed to this life, what exactly does that mean? Absolutely. The feeling I had was euphoric beyond language in this reality. And the understanding was at this point, always thinking about it, it was just consciously connected. I didn't have visuals where I was in another world and I Mm -hmm. saw this and it looked like the avatar world. It was, I don't even, you know, looking, I I don't even want to pick up on the language. It was really just through a conscious communication and a euphoric feeling. And I was leaving this world. I don't know where I was going, but I wasn't here. And it was very clear. And the messages and knowledge and communication washed through me. Mm. And it was, it seemed normal. It seemed appropriate. It was just understood there was no discrepancy i could say the words coming to me now is what there was nothing that wasn't what it should be right if that clarifies that everything was what it should be that was where it was we were on a level that was beyond this physical realm that we exist in on a day-to-day basis and it was a glimpse it was kind of you know opening the door a little bit and walking in And then instead of closing the door behind me, I went back or I was pushed back. 
And in that moment, I came back and I felt pain. I remember the emotion of survival to breathe. And that was the only emotion I had. That was the only thought was breathe, try and breathe and scraping for oxygen. And I remember saying, "There's is this turned up? I need more. It's up. It's fully up. Okay. He's, he's responsive. He's breathing. The epinephrine's working. Okay. We're give him more now. We're, we're getting him back. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, clarify from this moment on, when I came back and all that, there was no wonderful spiritual moment. I was in excruciating pain. I had uh, oxygen. I had needles in me. I had electrodes. I was scraping and fighting and, and, doing everything can I to survive and breathe. This was not a, a, a pleasant moment anymore. It was not euphoric. It was painful and very traumatic and, and violent in, in this room at this point of, of coming to and be, and really trying to be medically stabilized and come back uh, from a physical standpoint, mental and emotional, all that energy or any mental, emotional or spiritual aspect at this point was entirely focused on survival right. and breathing. Right. And that's what we went from. We went from this euphoric bliss and this experience with deceased loved ones to, I am, tr- I just need to breathe right now. I need to come back. Like I'm, I'm back to, you know, we, we need to live right now. And then I eventually stabilized and, in total, I was in the hospital for about eight hours. Mm-hmm. I had zero idea how long I was there. I, I, you know, I remember having some small talk with the staff when I was towards the end of my stay. And I said, well, I've been here for 40 minutes. They said, you've been here for eight hours. And I didn't understand how severe it was because I was, you know, I was just coming back. Everything was, oh, my God, what happened? They said, you know, you came in a nine and a half out of ten. They said, we didn't think you were going to survive. Mm. You were unrecognizable from when you walked in here. Wow. And at four in the morning or six in the, I think it was probably six in the morning, actually. The sun was pretty much coming up almost at this point. And they said, well, do you want to go home? There's nothing else. You're, you're okay. It's been eight hours. The, you know, the reaction is most likely, oh, we got you on so much epinephrine that, you know, you're cleared at this point. And I said, okay. So they, you know, I put on, they had the little blue socks with the little rubber pads on the bottom <laughs> very clearly. And I, uh, I walked out of that hospital eight hours later after barely functioning and stumbling in, nearly dying. So, Chris, someone out there in the audience is going to be thinking this exact question, so I've got to ask you. You carry these EpiPens with you wherever you go now, and they're current. Is correct? Absolutely. They are. I, I, oh, I have good. Benadryl in my wallet. I know. <laughs> I, I read every label. And, uh, yes, I, we, we have much more standards and uh you know procedures in place and i'm so glad to hear that very safe let's talk a little bit more about the aftermath of this but before we get into that i want to talk a little bit about some of the thoughts that people who hear your experience who are now relieved that you're not going to have that sort of thing happen again at least due to this exact 
due to eating a peanut-laden birthday cake, we they're still going to be asking themselves some other questions. NDEs, near-death experiences, have been the subject of, for obvious reasons, extreme interest and research, especially since the 70s when some literature about them that was organized and a little bit more systematic began to come out. Mm-hmm. And some who are in the highly skeptical community or who are scientists or who may have done a significant amount of reading on the topic might conclude that these are, and there are, and again, I don't want to cast aspersions on anyone. And I'm certainly not someone by the way, who would cast aspersions on scientific research itself. That's not me at all. But there are those that say that these near-death experiences, the sort of thing that you went through, are really just the results of oxygen deprivation, which is exactly what you were facing. And the systems in the body not integrating themselves as they normally do, creating hallucinations um, and other sort of neuron firings in the brain that are chaotic that create these illusions. What's your response, if any, to people that are thinking that? Okay, he just had a, a basically the world's most intense acid trip. What do you yeah. say? Um, absolutely. That's a very good question, and I've been asked that many times. And that's a, a, a and, you know, it's a very good question to ask within the community, and I think skepticism is healthy in many ways. And I, I will only speak for myself, not other ND or experiencers, or, but I, you know, I know my audience. And I, when I speak and I share my story, I'm not here to convert or tell anyone that I am 100% right with the universe and life. I could be right with everything eventually, or I could be completely wrong. Mm-hmm. I know the experience I had. I know that the healing, the traumatic experience, and the mental, physical, emotional, spiritual change that I've had over the last nine and a half years has completely changed me as an individual in my relationship to family, friends, this universe and community. And there have been countless stories over the decades of other individuals that have had the same. And, you know, science changes, as we all know. Yeah. Things thought were some way for many, many years turn out to be completely wrong yeah. and vice versa. And that's the beauty feel, of science, by the way, I think. And I feel that. This community, there's more research, more knowledge, more experiencers speaking, more people that are being saved by medical technology. Mm-hmm. Years ago, I, I would have passed, and so would have many other ND experiencers. And we're having more data to look at and say, this goes beyond a simple oxygen deprivation. Oxygen deprivation is a, a one moment, and that happens, or with other NDEs, but we don't have the explanation of why we have these other changes that have now been tracked mm-hmm. in experiencers' lives for decades later. Mm-hmm. And they don't have answers for that. But again, I, I am not looking to convert anyone. This is my story. Mm-hmm. It's up to the individual and the audience to draw their own conclusions. And I tell this experience as authentically and honestly as possible. And it's for the individual to draw their own conclusions. That's how I look at that. You have said, Chris, 
that you had difficulty discussing this event for a long time after it occurred. Absolutely. I, I did not talk about this publicly. Let me rephrase that. Several years after the event, I did attempt at a local IANS meeting to speak about it. What is that? It's the International Association of Near-Death Studies, which is a very large organization that publishes research and data and has a huge global network of NDE. So any of your audience that's interested in more is a phenomenal resource. Uh, And they have local chapters and national and national organization and yearly conferences. I attempted to speak about the NDE. I could not. I got about about 60% of what I've just discussed. I was able to talk about. Uh, so I was not able to fully talk about the why NDA. it was well that I'll go into that it it was so when I I want to go back to after I left that hospital yeah. that morning for the next week or two I was in unbelievable pain the next the last next couple of days I remember just laying in bed just focusing on breathing because everything in my body hurt everything was reset I was in un believable pain wow. several days. And then it took about a month, I'd say about six weeks, I was back to the gym and working and, and able to really function where mm-hmm. I was. During that time, I did not know what an NDE was. I never heard NDE. I did not know what happened. I had a severe allergic reaction. And that summer and the first you know, six months, I would wake up every morning and I would not know who I was. And I say that in the sense that I knew my name, I knew how to tie my shoes, but I did not understand my, my consciousness. I would look at flowers and just start crying. I would interact and react to things or moments or people and events, and I would not know. Because so I said, wait, I had a certain you know, consciousness and personality and it now shifted. Wow. It wasn't like a shift over 20 years of yoga and living. Yeah. It happened overnight in a very, very violent and traumatic yeah. experience. And I then go spit out the other side with all new mental, emotional hardware. Uh, and, you know, that was just the emotion. Then there was the physical. I, I you know, the sun was too bright. Wow. My music taste, my music tastes changed. I need much like softer music. My sensitivities were different. I went through a tremendous physical, spiritual, emotional shift, and I did not know what happened. It wasn't for about two and a half months later where I connected with someone and I said, hey, this is what happened. And she goes, oh, honey, you had a near-death experience. we, We need to talk more. And I go, okay. And um, then it all came together. But, you know, fortunately... I've kept a journal since I was 13. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I was journaling. And I, you know, I've looked back and we're coming up on almost you know, nine years ago. I, I, there were numerous journal posts and lines and statements in my writing where it said, my consciousness has completely shifted. It happened. It, it moved. Now, I know maybe the science says oxygen deprivation just completely changes someone spiritually and their consciousness shifts and they're a much different person. Uh, now, when I, I was living in Los Angeles, so a lot of my friends, all my friends and family were in the Northeast. A year or so later, when I came back, they noticed a difference. People I was with in L.A., even though I had a very short time with yeah. me, 
they still saw a difference with me energetically, how I was, my demeanor in many ways uh, within that. But for those six months, I was a, for lack of a better word, a hot mess of just waking up every day and being like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I I came to LA to, you know, you know, what were we going to do? I'm here sitting here in Beverly Hills selling mansions and now these things don't matter to me. You know, my value system is different. What I want is different. My relation to others is different. Everything, my diet's changed. My sensitivity to sunlight, music, noises, food has changed overnight. And I'm now discovering this. Like, oh, I went to do this and it didn't work. I'm like, whoa. So I I was in a new, everything was new. I didn't even know what the new I signed up for was. We're just going to find out going through life. Uh, It was really a very, you know, it was very difficult. And again, I was alone. I, I didn't have family, mm-hmm. friends, or real community to right. lean on and get through this and say, oh my God. No, I was sitting in Los Angeles 3,000 miles away. Uh, so that that's that was the process. And then I attempted you know, to speak about it about a year or two later, and I, I left out half the story, really the entire good part of the story in the NDE community. I, I didn't talk about the grandfather experience. And then, uh, you know, so, so to bring up to the point of where I am now speaking about it was I found after a certain amount of time that, two, one, I've been on a healing journey since that moment of everything from sweat lodges, meditation, yoga, sound baths, Reiki, energy healing, crystals, everything in that community in a way to really put myself back together and understand myself and my relationship to community and, and this universe. And everything was stripped away in that moment. And I had to rebuild. I had to reintegrate. And I still had to function in society and get along with others. Sure. I had to earn a living, sure. build my career, grow up through my 20s. All of these, that one in itself would be a lot, but now we say, okay, you have a near-death experience, you have to build your career, you got to make money, you got to do this, oh, you got to become an adult now, you're 25 years old, 24 years old, oh, and you had a near-death experience, and here's your entire new set of everything, and you're just going to figure it out with no owner's manual, just, you know, just play with it. Uh, so it was a very interesting time, challenging time, yeah. and there were some very beautiful moments on that journey, which I'm still on, of discovery and evolving and integrating. And then there were also some absolutely lonely, awful, just this This is terrible, what's going on in my mind, I can't relate to anything, I have no idea what's going on, moments. And I, I want to really highlight, you know, I told you before the show, I said, you know, Everyone looks for that Oprah moment with a near-death experience. There are those moments where they eventually or hopefully come full circle and there's always a silver lining. But for many years, it was not. It was the the moment was traumatic, violent, Mm -hmm. frightening. Uh, The integration was very difficult. It was trying to figure myself out. You know, just in in general in life, as everyone's doing of and growing course. up, and then you know, on top of it, you have an NDE, and it was very difficult, and it was very. It's hard. It's hard to figure it out because there's only so much we know because it's such a unique niche and experience, and there's 
conditions where, hey, we have a lot of knowledge and this is what we know works and this is what can help you. But within the NDE space, you know, it's we're still learning. Like right. we don't really know everything. We have some idea and everyone's different of what happened. And I'm still going through that. And I'm still you know, putting pieces back together and understanding. So to the answer of why I never spoke about it, I physically could not. People knew I had an experience. And if they asked, and there were several times people asked me that were close, and I would not talk about it. I said, I don't talk about it. That, and that was it. And it was a hard no. I wasn't wow. pleasant. It's a hard no. I said, I'm allergic. They said something. I said, we just don't talk about it. That's it. And that was... How... Have you moved forward with integrating this new self into a new identity, new consciousness, a new place in the world? What does it ultimately, at least at this point in your journey, come to mean? Well, there were some major moments. The, uh, going through, you know, being very fortunate to living in Los Angeles, there's no... Uh, limit on the conscious spiritual community. So I was very fortunate. I had plenty of... Uh, Is that a compliment or an insult? <laughs> I, I, I love it. That's, that's my group. I, you know, I, I love all that. So I, I found so many healers and community and events that I was able to go through the process, whether it be everything from, again, yoga, sweat lodges, Whatever I look at spirituality as a buffet, and you what resonates you work with, and it gets you through, and you manage it. And if you're you know consciously aware of, hey, I'm working through this, and I'm open, and I need to heal this. And I, I my intention throughout was a healing process, was healing and integration. That's what it was. I said, this is who I am. This is where I'm going. I don't know where it's going to end up, and it kind of keeps changing. And I'm going to do my best, and I'm going to focus on healing. And understanding and moving forward and going from there. And it took about eight years for me to speak about this experience fully. And there's reasons why I, I, I really just made the dive to do it. One was it's, I find it healing for me to talk about. It's still very difficult for me to sit here. This is not an easy topic and it's still very much real and emotional and, and authentic and and difficult to still, still process on many levels. Some levels, I, I you know, I just it's it's deep. It's very very deep. And the other one was and and this is how I've I've come to this point right now of you know my silver lining in the story after all the the difficulty and hardship and all of that. There's two, really. One was there was a woman that had something happen. Pretty much the exact same thing happened to her about a month or two after me. And she was not as fortunate. She is pretty much in a, she is in a vegetative state. And she can pretty much blink. So I should have never walked out of that hospital. I should have never made a recovery. I should have passed away or at the very least had some significant brain damage or something. I walked out of there, literally walked out and then paid for parking. And that's when I really knew I was back. 
big Los Angeles. From the profound yeah. to <laughs> the mundane. <laughs> I was like, oh, debit card, yeah, back to real, back to real. Um, so yeah, there was, we, we weren't, yeah, I knew I was back at that moment. So I look at that, and on top of the healing, obviously, there's always that emotion of, oh my God, how close was I? I was on that edge, and you know, I, I knew that young woman that I didn't know her, but I followed her story yes. of what happened, and that that could have easily just been flip a coin, either one of us. Yeah. Uh, but the other aspect, and, and why I, I, I sit on these shows and I put myself out there as difficult as it is, is to be able to help others. And when I was speaking once, when I first started, someone came up to me after and said, you know, so this really resonated with me, something you said, or I had this situation and it really touched me. And, you know, I look back on, you know, some people will ask me in the audience, why, why couldn't you die? Why did you have to go back? Did you have a more direct answer from your grandparents? And I really did. They just said, you have work to do, but that's pretty vague. You, you know, work could be anything. And mm -hmm. I said, I don't, I don't know what that answer is, but right now I know if I can help people speaking about this topic that is very niche, it's very deep, it's very personal, it's very something that is not openly discussed in traditional religious institutions or with individuals that feel they don't have family or community, I can lend an ear and I have a perspective that's you know different and I'm willing to speak about it. And also my age, I, you know, I'm 33 and there's not many mm -hmm. young professionals that are out there discussing something that this personal yes. and really this vulnerable, vulnerable as well. I mean, I, I really leave it all out there and, and, and discuss everything the best I can. So helping others. And that's the work I'm, I'm focusing on and doing. This is my service. This is my thank you to the universe, to, to being back and given the opportunity to walk out of that hospital when many people shouldn't, I shouldn't have. And if the least I can do is help someone and and someone hears this and with media now from podcasts and all over, I have people that randomly reach out all over the world. And that is really one of the most beautiful experiences I've had to be able to share because I don't know who this affects. And my goal is if I can help one person with something in their life that's difficult or give them understanding or make their life easier, then it's worth it. And that's why I do this. It's not easy for me. It's not something I love to do. I mean, I'm sitting here sweating bullets and, you know, my hands are a little shaky. And this is nine and a half years later. I mean, almost a decade later. It's a third of my life. And that's still my physical response to telling the story. And I don't have a problem public speaking. It's it's the story and the emotion that's, that's real. Uh, so I, I do that. And that if that, that, that's the work I'm doing. I'm giving back the best I can right now by speaking and, and being there for people that have a unique situation and that the traditional means of institutions or their network of family and friends community can't or they or they don't feel comfortable talking about this. You know, there's there's so many levels to where people have questions and you know, it, it's again, this is not necessarily mainstream for many people or many parts of the world. And it's something that they want that they're curious about and or they're having difficulty in life and they need they need to hear something. And uh, that's why that's why I do it. I do it in service of others. Interestingly enough, your NDE 
from what I'm hearing it described as, was very non-sectarian. It didn't have any of the iconography associated with a particular religious or spiritual background. In addition, a few minutes ago, you talked about your view of spirituality as a buffet, where we reach out and may put on our plate what resonates with us. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about if your NDE and the subsequent journey you have had ultimately led you to that conclusion and a little bit more about what that particular buffet statement means to you and may mean to those that are watching or listening. Absolutely. I, you know, I think there were some aspects of my near death experience that uncovered aspects in my, you know, my thoughts and consciousness. And then there was another part that just amplified what was already there. Hmm. I grew up, like I said, I would say I was spiritual. I, I remember in my dorm room, I had crystals. I had a few crystals. Uh, not a lot, but a couple. They were there. I'm glad you feel you can share that with us. <laughs> that, that I'm giving you a hard time. Yeah, uh, that, share, that highlights some of it. I would say that having the experience has increased tremendously spirituality in that path, which I was already on out, may have pushed it further many decades it may have enlightened it more and enhanced it. Absolutely, I think all the above. So it was always there, that behavior was just kind of exploded and the, the roof was ripped off to really you know, move it along. The saying with the buffet is not everything works for everyone. And my advice to others and what has worked for me was there are different modalities, different ways of healing, different avenues, and everything works for someone differently at a different time or for a different issue. And we're learning more and more. You know, 10 years ago, we never talked about the use of psychedelics for healing mm-hmm. and post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. and all these other issues. Now, it's kind of the big thing. Hey, everyone's jumping on that. A decade ago, you would have never heard it. So things are, everything is evolving. I found, for me, Traditional sweat lodges, healing ceremonies were wonderful. They were a beautiful experience. I, I also found sound baths and energy work very healing. I found speaking with individuals that were highly intuitive and having these discussions and really going into that for myself as a process of healing. I found travel, expense, extense, extensive international travel healing. Uh, being in nature, whatever that may be. And I would, you know, for someone that's listening, you know, it's okay if church on Sunday or Shabbat on Friday is not fulfilling. That That's all wonderful. Everyone finds peace and sustenance in wherever that is. And if you don't have it in what you're doing, keep looking. And it will change. Something may work for a year or two or for an issue or something you want to heal. But it's a path and it's a journey. And you have to just go within. You have to just get going. That's it. You got to do something. And I think everyone can heal. And that's that's a word that's not used really in this country and in our culture of healing. And really getting down and saying, you know, we're going to do something. We're going to be spiritual here. And even if that is just going out into the gym and lifting weights, whatever that is that brings peace, comfort, and you can heal and move forward, 
you have to go and do it. It's interesting that you say that, too. Part of the – and I'm someone who can really speak as to the discomfort with the concept of healing. I like how you just framed it as having something that can be experienced in a whole number of different modalities that don't necessarily even have to be overtly or classically considered spiritual. We have a guest that's going to be coming up on this show later in the season whose spiritual transformation has occurred through the modality of sailing. And that's perhaps seems a little bit more superficial, but when he talks about what it can mean, it has true validity for those that that speaks to. So I love the openness of it, but there is still within me, Chris, a part that reacts. I feel like maybe this is some internalized male chauvinism or something coming out. Healing. It's a confession of something I don't know that I need. Yeah, I've had bad shit happen in my life. So what? Why do I need to heal from that? And why would any of this speak to me if I even haven't even had a near-death experience? I know I want meaning in my life. I want to do things that are purposeful. But what do you have to say? What does all of this have to say to me as someone who knows? I might never in my life have an NDE. You yourself just said it was a bit of a, it's a bit of a niche experience. Absolutely. Talk to me. Well, I think... First of all, I, I wouldn't want anyone to have to have a near-death experience. And a lot of my speaking is sharing the journey. And along the journey, I've realized a tremendous amount about transformation. And we'll go back to healing and health and happiness. And sharing those ideas we spoke about, I think, enhances everyone's life. Now, Anyone can do, people can do whatever they want, your audience or anyone out there. And some people are ready, some people aren't to, to do that work because it is work. But I can say at my age now, I've rarely, if any, met anyone who could not improve or could not be or did not want to feel happier, mm-hmm. more fulfilled, mm-hmm. more purpose driven, more gratitude. And having that has not enhanced their life in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, maybe there are people out there that don't need any of that, and that's not my audience. Or, but I, I, I know, and we've seen with even research, living with purpose, living with gratitude, living with love, community, and the, the ability to transform and heal something that, yeah, bad things have happened. It happens to everybody. That is guaranteed in life. But what you can handle is how do you heal from that? How do you grow? How do you give back? I don't think there's anyone that said, hey, if you can have the opportunity to live with more peace, more love, more gratitude, more fulfillment, they wouldn't have that. And if you look at our society now, Scott, we have record numbers of mental illness, record numbers of anxiety, record numbers of prescription drug use, depression, anxiety, unfulfillment. We're coming out of, or still in, you know, give or take a global pandemic where people had to examine their lives from a business standpoint, career standpoint, relationship. So I think there are plenty of reasons why we would want to now look at everything. Now, everyone's on a different path. Some are going to look at it right away. Some aren't. 
But all those characteristics and those abilities to transform and those themes of gratitude, love, fulfillment, purpose, you can have the most linear person out there that is by the book. I don't believe anything. And you know what? You could still, they'll still say, hey, you know, I'm not happy with my job. I'm not happy. Well, okay, let's, let's work on that. Maybe we need to heal something. What do you really want to do? Why did you not do something? What else was there? So they think the conversation could be had with anyone. And some people are just a little bit tougher and they might not be open to it. And that is their journey. Um, I just, I'm here to speak and the people that want to listen and want to take from this, absolutely. And those, there's always going to be skeptics and that's, that's okay. That's nothing new. You just mentioned two things that I would like to wrap up the conversation by discussing. Number one, community. Number two, mental health issues that are increasing in our society. This season of the Purpose Highway is focused on a lot of the disintegrations that are happening in various segments of Western culture right now, vis-a-vis historical institutions that have provided the historical pathways for meaning and connection through the search for meaning. And interestingly enough, as you hinted at, the research around a lot of the increasing, uh, increasing negative mental health challenges that we're experiencing in our culture are tied to a lack of connection. You, during this experience, were alone in L.A. You were not connected. Yet, I note, during your NDE, you found connection in the form of two people. It's almost as if the world perhaps now crucially more than ever is crying out for some sort of movement or some sort of shift in how we perceive our cultural direction that leads us to deeper connection through the search for meaning. Do you see yourself as part of anything like that? Did anything that I just say resonate with you? Absolutely. That all resonates. I, I feel we, we, we have so much in the in this. I'll speak of the United States uh, materially, you know, of that we have. We have health, we have opportunity, but yet we're not as happy. We're not as fulfilled. What do we lack now? Instead of talking with someone and sitting down, we're texting. Instead of meeting, we're zooming. And there's so many aspects of where we're disconnected, emotionally, physically, from others. And there's something that's not working because people are unhappy and we're starting to wake up a bit. We're starting to say, all right, we got all this. Now what? Or I'm not happy or what's next? And we don't have the contentment. We don't have the gratitude and a lot of other, these other uh, feelings. And we are. We, we are meant to have community and those around us and emotion and that connectedness that you know we may not be able to pinpoint with science, but you know what? It feels good, and we're happy, and it works, and that's how we always were, supposed to be. I was alone, and yet when I was in that hospital, I had that community of medical staff that saved my life. I had the spiritual experience with my grandfathers. 
So even if we do feel we're alone, we're never truly alone. We just have to reconnect back to that soul level or that root, whatever it is. Again, the language is, you know, here and there. And we have to really come back and find ourselves. And we have to balance everyday life and the modern world we live in with spirituality. That's what I feel. And that could be in spirituality. It could be a catchphrase for community or, or whatever it may be relationships. It's just a, uh, it's just going through a deeper level of connection with yourself, those around you and your environment. Chris, this has been an incredible conversation. I appreciate your candor. Appreciate your willingness to share things that are difficult. And I appreciate your willingness to go deep. Thank you for having me. How can people connect with you? I know that after hearing this, people are going to want to learn more about you and maybe even see if they can have you speak at an event that they are having or, or meet others that might be interested in what you have to say. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the best way to reach me would be through Facebook. It's under my name, Chris Keto. And uh, if you just send a message, I, I respond to everyone. It might take a day or two, but I guarantee you I will respond to everyone and just send me a message and we can go from there. And that is the most effective and efficient way to reach me. And, uh, you know, I'm always here to listen or help. That is, that's why I'm out here doing this. And to, again, if I could help one person and that's my goal, then it's worth it. That's my, that's my service back for being so fortunate and grateful to be able to walk out of that hospital that morning. And we're grateful that that happened too. Chris, it's been great taking a ride with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott. Yes. And for everyone tuning in, if you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple or a comment on YouTube. And I will see you next time for another trip down the Purpose Highway. When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we want to make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's Nola, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's Nola crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. It's Nola's delightful bites come in three flavors. Luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala, and dark, decadent, chewy chocolate. It's Nola is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com. That's I-T-S-N-O-L-A.com. Guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack. Check out It's Nola's website for yourself and find out how good it is.